0: Let me here definitely state what has all along been implied, that the sinner is never brought to exercise evangelical faith or to rest his all upon the Savior till he has gained a thorough conviction that there is salvation in no other. This is often the result of a long course of self-righteous efforts. God permits him to take his own way and thoroughly to test the efficacy of means until he is driven to the blood of Christ as his last and only refuge. And when by faith he comes to receive the Savior, and the peace-speaking blood of Christ is applied to his soul, and he rejoices in God as a reconciled father, he wonders that he has not complied with the terms of the gospel before. He perceives that his faith in the Savior was a perfectly voluntary act, and that he has remained in darkness only because he would not come to the light of life. It is true indeed that the evidence of faith may not in all cases immediately accompany its exercise, and the soul may be left in darkness for a season, even after it has a right to appropriate to itself the consolations of a Christian hope. But in many instances, at least, the first act of confidence in the Savior draws down upon the soul the tokens of His love and surrounds it with the light of His countenance. The soul embraces its Savior in the arms of faith, and exultantly exclaims, My Lord and my God. And the Savior, acknowledging the soul is ransomed by His blood, graciously responds, Thy sins be forgiven thee. You may perceive, from what has been said, that the office of faith and our justification is simply to appropriate the blessings of the Redeemer's purchase, and hence it is to be considered merely as an instrument. The blessings of salvation are all the purchase of the Savior's blood, and are offered without money and without price. Faith is a hand by which a soul receives these blessings. The poor man on whom you bestow your charity never suspects that there is any merit in the act of holding out his hand to receive it. Nor does the sinner any more dream of merit in the act of stretching out the hand of faith to receive those spiritual blessings which the Lord Jesus has treasured up for the supply of His people. Methinks I hear someone say, and is it so that faith is the only thing requisite for salvation? How is it then that in other parts of the Bible good works are so explicitly enjoined? How is it especially that the Savior himself could not mistake in respect to the conditions of salvation, hath said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you? In order to see the perfect consistency of these different passages with each other, we have only to refer to the gracious constitution of the gospel. By good works in Scripture are not works which are good merely in form, which appear to the eye of man to be good, while they are dictated by motives which God cannot approve, but such as are good in principle, which are the legitimate operation of sincere and sanctified affections Good works in this sense are indeed essential to salvation, unless a believer dies before he has an opportunity of performing them. But then they are essential not as constituting the ground or any part of the ground of a sinner's justification, but simply as the fruits and evidences of the living faith. There is truly required by the gospel as faith itself, and even if they had not been explicitly required, the requisition of them would have been involved in a requisition of faith, for evangelical faith is a great principle of Christian obedience. There may be that which pretends to be the faith of the gospel, which does not produce good works, but it will be found in the end to have been no better than the faith of the devils. You may inquire again how the importance which I have here given to faith consists with those passages in which repentance, being born again and so on, are mentioned as the conditions on which eternal life is bestowed, Here again the answer is easy. Being born again is nothing less than having a renewed nature. And faith, repentance, and all other Christian graces are only the legitimate exercises of that nature. Evangelical faith always includes godly sorrow for sin. And there is no such thing as genuine repentance independently of a believing view of the great atonement. The Christian character is made up of a variety of virtues and graces, and as no one of them exists independently of the rest, wherever one of them is enjoined, the rest are implied. They may indeed exist from different degrees of strength, and some of them may be so feeble that they seem scarcely to exist at all. Nevertheless, where a gracious principle has once been implanted, there is the embryo of a perfect character. Hence you perceive that whether we exhort you to repent of your sins, or believe in Christ, or submit to God, or obtain a new heart, the direction is in each case substantially the same, and it is impossible that you should obey one of these injunctions without at the same time obeying all the rest. I have now endeavored to show you, my young friends, what you must do to secure the salvation of your souls, Let me, in conclusion, direct your attention to two or three practical remarks. Number one, and first, the subject teaches you that it is a most responsible office to direct and counsel the awakened sinner. When the mind is wrought up to a high state of painful excitement and is anxiously looking out for relief, it is likely to grasp with eagerness at anything that is offered in the way of consolation. And if, at such a moment, an awakened sinner has a cup of poison put into his hands, there is great danger that he will drink down its contents and suspect no danger till he finds the blood freezing at his heart. One right direction at that critical moment is doubtless often in the hands of the Divine Spirit, the means of bringing the sinner to a joyful acceptance of Christ's salvation, while on the other hand it admits of as little question that one wrong counsel may be the means of carrying the soul away from the Savior and entrenching it in some wretched, fatal delusion. You are a young Christian, and some companion comes to you to tell you confidentially that he is anxious for his soul and to ask you what he shall do to secure his salvation. There is danger that his distress may work upon your natural sensibilities in such a way that you may drop some expression that will lower his view of the evil of sin or that will put him upon some other way of relief than that which is prescribed in the gospel. But rely on it. This is a false compassion. If his impressions concerning his character and prospects were only the effect of a heated fancy, unquestionably it were an act of kindness to undeceive him and to restore, if possible, the serenity of his mind by convincing him of his mistake... But this is not the fact, so far from it, that the most vivid conceptions of his guilt, which he is able to form, probably fall far below the actual reality. If your brother or sister were sick, would it be kindness in you to forbear administering a remedy which you knew would be efficacious only because it might be disagreeable? And would you substitute one which you were certain could not avail only because it might give momentary relief and would not be attended With pain? If the dearest friend I have on earth were so bowed down under a sense of sin as to be deprived even of that rest which nature requires, if his iniquities had taken hold upon him so that he could not even look up, though I would open my heart wide to his distresses and would go and spread out his case before my God and would embalm my supplications with tears, yet I should not dare to point him to any other refuge than the cross of Christ. I should not dare to press upon Him any less important duty than repentance of sin, and faith in the atonement, and submission to God, His rightful Sovereign. Until He has done this, I should be obliged to say, however my heart might bleed for His anguish, that His convictions were not unreasonable. Yes, if I should point Him to any other spot in the universe than the cross of Calvary, I should anticipate the time when I should hear a reproving and reproaching voice from the world of despair charge me with having been his destroyer. Number two, in view of our subject we see how exactly accommodated are the terms of the gospel to the necessities of men. Any scheme of salvation that was not entirely of grace could never meet the exigencies of our condition. If the blessings of eternal life were to be bestowed only on the ground of human merit, where is the being on earth who could expect any other portion than that which the Bible awards to the reprobate? For where is the individual who has not, by violating the precept, exposed himself to the penalty of God's law, But the scheme of mercy which the gospel proposes contemplates man in all his guilt and ruin. It proffers to him a free forgiveness, a free salvation, and it demands only that he should accept it without money and without price. Behold here both the wisdom and goodness of God, that he should have devised a scheme of redemption, in which the necessities of our condition are so happily contemplated. Here also behold an illustrious proof of the divinity of the gospel, for what man or angel could have formed a plan, in which so much grace shines forth to rebel man, and so much glory redounds to God in the highest. Finally, happy is that youth who has believed in Christ to the saving of his soul. For this principle of faith constitutes a delightful bond of union between the soul and its Savior, which is the channel of the richest spiritual blessings which all the powers of darkness might labor in vain to dissolve. What though he may die in the morning of life, his faith will secure to him a part in the inheritance which Jesus has purchased for his people.' What though he may be spared to the period of middle life or old age, his faith is a pledge that he will live for the benefit of his fellow men and the glory of his Redeemer. What though temptation may assail him in its varied form, and affliction may aim at him its sharpest arrows, his faith will enable him to triumph over the one and to rejoice in the other. What though he may sometimes be ready to sink under the burden of his own corruption, Faith will be in him a principle not only of comfort, but sanctification, and will ensure to him a victory over these internal foes. How lovely will be his character, how useful his examples in life, how peaceful his reflections, how bright his prospects in death, and how unutterably glorious his condition in eternity. Lecture 11. Evidence of Religion Matthew 7, verse 21 Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It is a privilege of God's people not only to have a principle of divine life implanted in their hearts, which is destined to prove the germ of immortal glory, but also to possess the evidence themselves, and furnish evidence to others that such is their happy condition. Every Christian may, by a faithful inspection of his own heart, satisfy himself on good grounds that he is a disciple of Christ. Every Christian will, by the general tenor of his conduct, evince the same fact to those who have an opportunity of witnessing his conversation and deportment. Nevertheless, it must be acknowledged that, though the evidences of personal piety are within the reach of every individual insomuch that no one need mistake in any respect his own character, there is great danger that erroneous judgments will actually be formed, and that persons by the adoption of false standards will fatally deceive themselves on the point of their acceptance with God. And while this is true in a degree of all, it is especially true of the young and that for reasons which are so obvious that I need not stop here to specify them. It is the design of this discourse, my young friends, to guard you against mistakes on this momentous point, to prevent you on the one hand from resting satisfied with insufficient evidence of Christian character, and to save you on the other from needless anxiety and distress, though a misapprehension of the kinder degree of evidence with which you ought to be satisfied." The words of our text, as they stand connected with our Lord's discourse, are designed primarily to aid us in forming a judgment of each other. But if I mistake not, they may also be legitimately used to assist us in forming a judgment of ourselves. Both these objects will be kept in view while I endeavor to present before you, first, what are not, and secondly, what are evidences of Christian character." I am first to notice several things which, taken by themselves or taken together, furnish no sufficient evidence of Christian character. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Number 1. Under this article I observe first that there is no judgment to be formed on this subject from any character which one's conviction of sin may assume. Nothing is more common than for persons, in speaking of the hopeful piety of others, to dwell with great emphasis upon the fact that they have been the subjects of peculiarly deep and pungent convictions, and no doubt, too, that many, in estimating their own claims to the Christian character, for want of better evidence, go back to the same period, and think over the remorse and terror and agitation which they then felt, and very charitably, Alas, too charitably for themselves, conclude that in all this there must have been laid the foundation of a thorough conversion to God. True it is indeed, as you have heard, that there is no repentance which is not preceded by conviction, but it is far from being true that there is no conviction which is not followed by repentance. Even the most pungent conviction that was ever felt on the side of the world of woe involves not the least necessity in the nature of the case, or the least certainty, in fact, of the subsequent renovation of the heart. And in accordance with this statement, who that has been conversant with subjects of this kind has not witnessed instances in which the most deep and awful impressions of the wrath of God have manifestly given place to a habit of carelessness, And a soul that seemed to be stricken by the terrors of the judgment has in a little while fallen back into the current of worldly levities, and not a vestige of anxiety or even of seriousness has remained. Venture not, then, my young friends, for a moment to believe that you have experienced the renewing influences of the Spirit, merely from the fact that you have experienced His awakening influences, even though His disclosures may have filled you with agony." that you may ascertain your condition in the sight of God, it is right indeed that you should inquire whether you have ever seen your true character as a ruined and guilty sinner. But if this be the only inquiry that you make, and you rest satisfied here, you are inevitably deceived, and there is every probability that you are undone. The reprobate in the world of despair are the subjects of far more pungent conviction than was ever felt by mortals on earth. But the spirit which reigns in their hearts, would, if it were armed with power, arrest from the Almighty his scepter, and spread desolation through the universe? Is it not presumption? Is it not madness to believe yourself regenerated on no better evidence than that which the fins of darkness have and have had for ages? Number two. There is nothing in the peculiar manner of the Spirit's operation at the time of a supposed conversion by which it can be decided with certainty whether the change be genuine. It is well known that there is a great diversity in the manner in which the Holy Spirit operates to bring sinners into the kingdom. Sometimes the change is gradual, and the subject of it can only say in comparing His exercises at different periods. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Whereas in other cases, the Savior reveals himself suddenly to the soul in all his grace and glory, and fills it with joy unspeakable. Now, as these different states of mind actually exist in connection with a genuine conversion, so each hath its counterfeits. And neither the one nor the other can be safely relied on as evidence of evangelical faith. I can point you to instances in which individuals who have seemed to come silently and tremblingly into the kingdom have expressed the utmost distrust of their own hearts, have, after all, fallen back and openly deserted the cause of Christ. And I can point you to instances still more numerous in which the strongest professions of humility and faith and joy and deadness to the world at the time of a supposed conversion have been followed and speedily followed by an entire disregard and sometimes an absolute contempt of spiritual religion. Here again then, my young friends, be on your guard against self-deception. Are you professedly a disciple of Christ, and yet are you living in criminal conformity to the world? And though you are conscious that there is nothing at present either in the exercises of your heart or the conduct of your life to yield any evidence of a spiritual renovation, are you nevertheless recurring in your thoughts to the peace and love and rapture of other days as evidence that a principle of divine life has been implanted in your soul? Believe me, all that peace and love and rapture may have been delusion and your present condition renders it more than probable that it was so. Yes, what you once thought was the evidence of piety, and what you still cling to as such may be only the result of an attempt of the grand adversary to blindfold you in respect to your danger, that he may the more easily lead you down to perdition. Number 3. The most diligent performances of external duties is not to be relied on as an evidence of a renewed heart. You may be a regular and respectful attendant at the sanctuary, as often as the doors of the sanctuary are open. You may devote part of every day to the reading of the Bible, and may feel an interest in gaining a knowledge of its blessed truth. You may often be found in the private religious circle, and may be the instrument of edifying and comforting others by the part you take in its exercises. You may, in a full belief of the truth of the gospel, join yourself to the number of God's people, and come to the holy ordinance of the supper, thus rendering an external obedience to the Savior's dying command. You may even go farther than this, and may enter your closet statedly and frequently, and may fall down upon your knees and may take the language of prayer upon your lips. And in all this you may be conscientious, and may actually suppose yourself devout. And yet, after all, the spirit of true piety may never have found a place in your heart. It may all be the working of a spirit of self-righteousness, a spirit which is seeking to secure the divine favor by means which have never received the divine sanction, which would substitute as a price of salvation, human merit, for the merit of the Redeemer's blood. I do not say that in all this there may not be that which may seem to indicate in the surrounding world the existence of a principle of religion, but I do say that this, and more than this, may exist, while the heart has never experienced a moral renovation. And while, of course, the individual can have no evidence of having experienced it. Number 4. I observe once more that no degree of zeal in respect to the great objects and interests of religion furnishes decisive evidence of Christian character. You may not only do all and be all that I have supposed under the preceding article, that is, you may not only discharge the various external duties belonging to a Christian profession with diligence and punctuality, but you may manifest a degree of interest in respect to the advancement of the kingdom of Christ which may procure for you the reputation of a devoted Christian, and which may seem to cast into the shade the apparently more sluggish efforts of some who have really been born of the Spirit. You may talk much of your inward experience, of the trials and conflicts, the joys and triumphs of the Christian life, and may imagine yourself the subject of raptures which seem to you like the beginning of heavenly glory, You may wonder at the apparent heartlessness of other professors and even doubt the genuineness of their religion because their feelings do not rise so high as your own. You may deplore the deep moral lethargy of the surrounding world and may sound the note of alarm in the ear of every careless sinner whom you meet. You may even set up as a reformer and astonish a world by a wild, startling theory of faith and duty and exhibit a deportment which to the surrounding world shall seem to say, Stand by, I am holier than thou. Yes, and you may be foremost on the list of those who are willing to contribute their time and substance and influence to the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And may seem to evince a spirit of self denial which would not shrink from martyrdom. All this you may be and do, and yet, after all, you may be an utter stranger to the influence of genuine religion. For in all these labors and sacrifices, the secret feeling of your heart may be that you are drawing upon you the approving eye of God, and laying up for yourself treasures to bliss to be realized in eternity. And with this filling there may be a spirit of pride, which exalts in a comparison of your own character with that of others, and which, strange as it may seem, subsists in no small degree upon your fancied self abasement. Here again you may deceive the world, but if you deceive yourself, it is only because you neglect to ascertain the real state of your heart or because you neglect to compare it with the Bible standard of Christian experience. So far, then, you may go and not be a Christian. You may have pungent convictions and glowing raptures. You may be punctual in the performance of external duties and zealous for the advancement of the cause of Christ. And yet, after all, you may have no sufficient evidence that you have been born of the Spirit. So far your experience may reach, and yet be nothing more than saying, Lord, Lord. In what then does consist the true evidence of Christian character? We have the answer to this inquiry in the concluding part of our text, But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven... This is the second division of our discourse. The grand test of Christian character, then, is obedience to the will of God. It is not perfect obedience for no mere man, since the fall has ever perfectly kept the commandments of God. The Bible has declared that all have gone out of the way, that there is none that doeth good and sinneth not. The condition on which salvation was originally offered was perfect obedience, and if man had yielded such obedience, he might have claimed eternal life on the ground of law as his reward. But the gospel contemplates him as a sinner, and the conditions on which it offers salvation are accommodated to his character as a sinner. And while it continues, a law as a rule of life, and supposes the disposition in the Christian to obey the law, it nevertheless makes provision for the forgiveness not only of past sins, but of those also which flow from his partially sanctified nature. The gospel, like the law, demands of the sinner that he should do the whole will of God, but unlike the law it provides for the acceptance of an imperfect obedience. What then is the nature of that obedience which is to be regarded as a test of Christian character? It is the obedience of the life and the obedience of the heart. It is the obedience of the life by which I mean the habitual discharge of all external duties. There are those who lay great stress upon the duties which they owe to man who yet find it an easy manner to compromise with conscience for those which they owe to God. And their domestic relations, as parents or children, Husbands or wives, brothers or sisters, they are in many respects most exemplary, and are always on the alert to minister to each other's happiness. In civil society they are active and publicly spirited and are ready to lend a helping hand to the various institutions which promise to ameliorate the condition of man. They are moreover generous and humane and will never turn a deaf ear to the cry of distress and will even go and search out objects of want and suffering that they may administer relief. But on the other hand they will think it a light manner to suffer their seats to be vacant in the house of God and will regard the Bible as little more than a piece of antiquated furniture and will hardly suspend their secular employments on the Sabbath. And as for the duty of private prayer or confessing Christ before men, they never even think of performing it. They are good neighbors and good friends and good citizens, but here you must stop, unless you go on to say that God is not in all their thoughts. There is another class, just the opposite of this, who perform their pharisaical exactness, the external duties which they owe to God, while those which belong to their social relations are but little regarded, they make conscience of being in the house of God at least twice every Sabbath, and offering her if they have opportunity, they publicly profess their faith in Christ, and unite with His people in commemorating His death. They come regularly to every prayer meeting, and never shrink from taking part in its services. They go at least every morning and evening into their closets for prayer, and in their daily intercourse always seem ready to admonish the careless sinner or the sluggish Christian, or to put forth an effort in any way for a revival of religion. And yet, after all, when you hear the testimony of their poor and sick neighbors respecting them, it may be that they have said of them, Be ye warmed, and be ye clothed, depart in peace or if it has occurred to you to look a little more closely into their characters and to inquire of those who have had dealings with them in the world what testimony they have to render concerning them, possibly they may tell you significantly that though they have heard that they were very good in prayer, they have found them to be very hard in a bargain. And it may be even that common report has superseded the necessity of all inquiry, and that they have an established character in the world for being not only unmerciful but unjust, If you should see them in the church or the lecture room, you might put them down on the list of those of whom the world is not worthy. But if you should see them in the counting room or the exchange, you'd put them down on the list of those with whom you would wish to have as little to do as possible. Now, my young friends, I hardly need say that obedience of the Christian life differs essentially from both of these, while yet it has something in common with each of them. The true Christian will not make the performance of one set of duties an apology for the neglect of another, but he will endeavor faithfully to perform them all. It will be equally a matter of conscience with him to perform the duties which he owes to God and to man, for he will recollect that both are enjoined by the same authority. The true Christian is a Christian in the closet, a Christian in the family, a Christian in the church, and a Christian in the world. And he who habitually neglects the duties which devolve upon him in any of his relations has no reason to regard himself a Christian. In the obedience of the Christian life there is no exception to be made for the most difficult and self-denying duties. There are those who are willing to render an external obedience to God's commandments when he commands nothing that involves much self-denial, who nevertheless are not willing to follow Christ at the expense of taking up the cross. Let the command be to attend church on the Sabbath, or to distribute of your property to the necessities of the poor, or to discharge any other of the common duties of the Christian life, and you will yield perhaps a prompt and cheerful compliance. But change the case, and suppose the path of duty to become a thorny path. Suppose something be required of you which is like plucking out the right eye or cutting off the right hand. Suppose a beloved Isaac is to be let out and let out by your own hand for sacrifice, why, then, perhaps you will begin to hesitate and reason and murmur, and the result of the whole may be that, that you will make some kind of compromise with conscience for the neglect of duty. Christian obedience, on the contrary, knows nothing of this compromising temper. There is in it a spirit of courage and inflexibility which agitates with the single question, What does God require of me? And that being settled, nothing remains but action— no matter whether his path be strolled with flowers or whether it be illumined by the fires of the martyr state. Moreover, the obedience of the Christian life is a persevering obedience. You see many who begin well, but their obedience does not hold out. For a while they seem disposed faithfully to discharge the whole circle of Christian duties, but at length they find an apology for the neglect of one and then another and another until their obedience becomes so defective that no one can mistake it for the evidence of piety. The true Christian, on the other hand, though he may have his seasons of declension, perseveres and on the whole becomes more and more faithful in the discharge of duty. The path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. It is proper here to remark that in estimating the Christian character of our fellow men, there is some regard to be had to the variety of constitutional temperament, Some from their original constitution are more inclined to perform one set of duties than another, and with all the counteracting influences both of conscience and principle, it will be strange if this original bias does not more or less frequently discover itself. Of two individuals possessing on the whole an equal amount of piety, one may excel most in some of the Christian graces, another in some others, while each may exhibit his peculiar corresponding deficiencies. It were rash, therefore, to question the piety of anyone who claims to be considered a Christian without having regard to his peculiar temperament, though no peculiarity of temperament must be allowed to set aside the evidence against him that results from the habitual neglect of any known duty, or the habitual indulgence of any known sin. Such is the obedience of the Christian life. It is respect to all God's commandments, even those which require the most difficult duties, and it is persevering and progressive, and this, let me say, constitutes all the evidence of Christian character that we can furnish to the world. But in judging ourselves, we are to go farther and inquire whether the obedience of the life is also associated that of the heart, whether with the outward act which is open to the observation of man, there is the inward principle to command the approbation of God. You perceive, then, that by the obedience of the heart I mean nothing more nor less than the spirit which prompts to the obedience of the life. The obedience of the heart implies two things. Number one, an utter renunciation of every claim to personal merit. There is nothing more natural to man than a spirit of self-righteousness. Though he has no disposition to yield obedience to the law, he is more than willing to be saved by it. And hence, it not unfrequently happens that when persons who are flagrantly immoral are interrogated in respect to their hope of future happiness, they instantly recur to something they have done, or it may be to something they have not done as constituting its foundation. But such a spirit does not, cannot reign in the breast of the true Christian. For in the act of becoming a Christian he has gained a settled conviction that there is no merit in his best services, and that after all he has done he is an unprofitable servant. While well, therefore he engages in the faithful discharge of all external duties, while he doeth what his hand findeth to do with all his might, he realizes that it is by help obtained from above that he is enabled to do anything. And though indeed he expects a reward, yet he expects it not as a matter of debt but of grace." And the more abasing in his views of himself, the more cordial his confidence in the merit of the Savior's blood. So much the mere elevated are his hopes, so much the brighter the evidence that his heart has been brought under the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost. Number 2. The obedience of the heart also implies an ultimate regard to the authority and glory of God. The unrenewed man may perform acts externally good as truly as a Christian. He may perform them from a regard to his reputation, or from a spirit of self-righteousness, or from constitutionally noble and benevolent feelings. But the Christian performs them because God has required them, and he delights to obey his requisition. He regards God not merely as a righteous lawgiver, but as a most gracious and compassionate Father. And like a good child, he not only acknowledges but reverences his authority. But the Christian in his obedience has respect to the glory as well as the authority of God. The ruling desire of the heart is that God may be glorified, and he knows that he can glorify him only by reflecting his image, or what is the same thing, by doing his will. Hence when he puts forth his hand to any benevolent work, or when he has the pleasure of seeing it accomplished, or indeed when he performs the most common duties of the Christian life, the language of his heart is, Not unto myself, but to thy name, O Lord, be all the glory. God is especially glorified when the redemption of the gospel takes effect in the hearts of men, because in that work the attributes of his character are most signally illustrated. Hence a Christian not only delights to open his own heart to the influence of evangelical truth, but to procure for the same truth a lodgment in the hearts of others, in other words, to make men wise unto salvation. In a word, agreeably to the exhortation of the apostle, whatever he does, he does it heartily as to the Lord, and not to men. Such is the obedience of the heart, that on which you are especially to rely in estimating your claim to the character of a Christian. I will now conclude with two brief remarks. Number 1. The subject shows us the importance of being cautious in respect to the judgments we form of Christian character, both in regard to ourselves and others. We have seen that there is a strong tendency among men to set up false standards on this subject, and instead of referring character to the only scriptural test, to refer it to some arbitrary test, which the Bible has not even seen to sanction. For instance, you have a friend who has been the subject of pungent convictions, and then again the subject of glowing raptures, and you speak to that friend and of him as if you were absolutely certain that he had been renewed. You may indeed have reason to hope that this is the case, and there may be that in his general appearance, for which you may with good reason give God thanks. But from the nature of the case, you can never at that period know that he is a Christian, because you cannot search the heart, and because multitudes have for a season appeared in all respects as promising as He, who have afterwards shown themselves among the open enemies of the cross. Now believe me, you will be likely to render a much better service to that individual by impressing him with the danger of self-deception and of the importance of self-examination and of giving all diligence to make his calling and election sure than by inspiring him with the spirit of self-confidence. For if he be a Christian, the former course certainly will do him no harm. If he be not a Christian, the latter course may serve effectually to seal his perdition. Or it may be that the case is your own, that you are the very person who is rejoicing in the hope of having felt the power of God's grace. My young friend, I rejoice with you, but it is right that both you and I should rejoice with trembling. The act of regeneration is indeed instantaneous, but not so the evidence of it. That is to be collected by a diligent and long-continued inspection of your heart and life. Beware then how you indulge a hope too soon or too confidently. Beware how you satisfy yourself with any evidence which is nothing more than calling Christ Lord, Lord. Finally, Let the subject lead you to diligent self-examination. You indulge a hope that you have been renewed by the Spirit of God. Answer then to your conscience the following questions. Am I endeavoring faithfully to discharge my whole duty in the family and in the world, in the closet and in the church, to God and to man, and all my relations and conditions? Is it my grand object not only to know but to do what the Lord requires of me? In the obedience which I render to the commandments of God, do I make any exception in favor of those duties which involve severe self denial, or do I as readily perform those as any other? Do I perform external duties with a self righteous spirit, or with a spirit of self abasement and humble dependence on God's grace, with a disposition to arrogate the glory to thyself, or to give all the glory to God? It is the spirit of obedience gaining strength in my heart, and am I more and more determined that nothing shall drive me from the post of duty, and that, come what will, I will ever be found on the Lord's side. If such is the character of your obedience, no doubt it is the operation of a principle of living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I beseech you. Be not satisfied with any evidence that you are a Christian less decisive than this. If you trust a mere conviction, or mere rapture, or mere past experience of any kind, without respect to the present, there is every reason to believe that you will be deceived. But if you have the evidence of present sincere persevering obedience, it is the best evidence, the only sufficient evidence that you can possess. Wherefore, my young friends... Let me leave you for the present with the exhortation of the Apostle. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lecture 12. Profession of Religion. Isaiah 44, verse 5 One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. In this and several preceding chapters, the prophet is describing the blessings which the Jews might expect on their return from captivity, though his description clearly looks forward to the still richer blessings which the church should enjoy under the gospel dispensation. These blessings are all included in a plentiful effusion of the Holy Spirit, especially upon the young. I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed, and my blessings upon thine offspring, and they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. The consequence of this signal effusion of divine influence is described in our text. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. The youth who should be converted would enter into a covenant with God by making a public profession of religion. As the preceding discourse was intended to exhibit before you the evidence of Christian character, thus assisting you to decide whether a principle of religion has been implanted in your hearts, the topic which the text suggests... That of a public profession of religion seems naturally to follow next in order. I shall therefore, in the present discourse, call your attention to the nature of a Christian profession, to the qualifications requisite for it, and to some considerations illustrative of its importance. As to the nature of a Christian profession, number one, I observe first that it includes an acknowledgement of the divine authority and doctrines of the Bible. It implies a recognition of the fact that the Bible is the word of God, that whatever that contains, being the product of divine inspiration, is true. So much is this necessary to constitute the Church of Christ, a community distinct from that of pagans or Jews or Mohammedans. Of course, whoever joins this community must be, in a broad sense, a believer in revelation. But this is not all. There is implied in a Christian profession not only a recognition of the fact that God has given a revelation to the world, and that that revelation is contained in the Bible, but also an assent to the great doctrines of which it is composed. I say the great doctrines, and by these I mean those truths which enter essentially into the nature of Christianity, and which cannot be separated from it, but that it will have entirely lost its beauty and power. Each particular church has no doubt a right to decide for herself what doctrine shall constitute the basis of her union. But so long as she holds the head, that is, so long as she acknowledges Christ in the scriptural sense as the foundation, she has a claim to be considered as a branch, and her members as members of the true church. But the moment she abandons the fundamental truth of Christianity, though she may retain her character as a distinct society, she loses it as a branch of the Church of Christ. She may yet be a city set on a hill, but the light which is in her and which diffuses around her is darkness. But you inquire, perhaps, whether this manner of creeds is not a thing of human invention, inasmuch as Jesus himself sanctioned the confession of Peter, which was simply an acknowledgment of his Messiahship. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I answer, this declaration of Peter is an epitome of the whole gospel. Our Lord, Lord, in approving this expression of Peter's faith, took for granted that the truth which this proposition involves were also received. And what is there that is essential in Christianity, let me ask, that is not involved in it? Do you believe in the simple proposition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Then if you are consistent, you believe that He is God manifest in the flesh, that He came to redeem the world, and hence that the world is in a state of ruin. You believe all that He has said of Himself, and all that the Holy Ghost has said of Him, of His character, His errand from heaven, and the means by which it is accomplished. And this includes the whole of Christianity." Admit, if you will, that Peter might not have meant so much as this, inasmuch as his views respecting the Messiah's kingdom were still crude and imperfect. Nevertheless, Peter is here to be considered as the organ of the Holy Ghost, and is uttering a declaration in behalf of the Church, the full meaning of which, when the mist of Jewish prejudice had passed away, the Church would be able to understand. And so the result has proved, this declaration has always been regarded by the Church as embodying all the grand peculiarities of Christianity. But the supposition that a simple ascent to the Messiahship of Jesus, or to the authority of revelation, were all that is implied in a profession of Christianity involves an absurdity. For in making such a profession, you surely declare your belief in the Christian religion. What then is a Christian religion? Is it merely the fact that God has given to the world a revelation, and that that revelation is contained in the Bible? Or is it not rather the truths or doctrines which the Bible contains?
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.